0: press stop now. Go, go away. Go fix your problems before you come back here to listen. I promise you it'll be better once you're a little stoned. Uh, I got a couple of really interesting stories for you, a couple of which I've been sitting on for a couple of weeks here. Um, and We'll jump right into them, but Front-loading on that, I want to give you guys the briefest of garden updates for those few of you who follow along and are gardeners yourselves. Uh, Anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while knows we are pretty heavily into the gardening and suburban wannabe homesteading action around here. we got laying hens and uh, we also have quail you know, micro hens, small chickens that, uh, they're not chickens, they're a completely different bird, of course, uh, but uh, that we also keep for eggs as well as in the case of the quail for occasional taking for their meat. Uh, In addition to that, we garden in every corner of our suburban property. So, you know, that's just a big part of our lifestyle around here and we've been doing it for years. Now, at this time of year, late July, we are talking peak growing season right now. Uh, Anybody who started their garden early this spring is already taking things from their garden, uh, as have we been. It's actually booming this year, and I'm really pleased about that, especially in this time of like the virus and the lockdown. um, With so much extra time at home and the you know, online conspiracy prepper community vibe being one of, you know, food shortages are on their way. Things are never going to be the same. Da 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 da. The usual. Um, Being gardeners, we just went, we rolled with it, right? We said, okay, we're, you know, we have a baby greenhouse. We have lots of seeds. We have some, you know, plants we've overwintered. Let's get stuff ready for the year. So we really went, as big as we could, you know, with our imagination this year in terms of a variety of plants as well as simply the amount. And uh, while our implementation is far from perfect and while we're far from being anything resembling a self-sufficient micro farm, anything of the sort, all we're doing is just doing our best here, trying to grow what we can as much of the year as we can. Um, maybe it saves us money sometimes, maybe it costs us money sometimes. It certainly costs us time to do this gardening, but it feels like a good activity, a good habit, a good lifestyle to, pun intended here, cultivate in ourselves. So, um, But to give you the update and to move on from it, We've had a great season so far, and if the whole season went sideways tomorrow, I would still kind of call it a win. And the reason why is because we went big on our our potato planting this year, using many seed potatoes, uh, some of which we had grown last season to start things off. And we harvested over 50 pounds of potatoes already. Um, And the potatoes are done now, so already is is everything for this season. I don't think we're going to replant potatoes now. um, We got nearly as many onions as potatoes. Uh, We also started them early, started them in trays, started them in the greenhouse, Um, you know, got them from early, early plant sales, over winter plant sales. Onions are some of the first things they start to sell you in the early season here in, in the Northwest. We got them in the ground. We planted them in the backyard and in the front yard, in the ground, and in raised beds, and I'm still pulling the last of the onions out of some of my Elevated raised beds. Uh, Absolutely delighted. Walla Walla sweets, big fat round ones. Spanish red onions, big fat round ones. We haven't done well with onions in a few seasons now. So, you know, we think we did some stuff right with that and we'll be looking to try to repeat that, take it even further next season. The challenge for both the potatoes and the onions, uh, it will, of course, be we've harvested them in July. It's the hottest time of year. We don't have a really pure dedicated root cellar or anything to locate these in. So for the time being, they're in the workshop. They've had a fan on them and been in the dark, uh, you know, pretty much the whole time. Uh, This, of course, is to gently dry them out so that they become, you know, what their final, more stable, shelf-storable selves are. Uh, From there, we'll need to you know, crate them up, box them up, bag them up, and find cool, dry, darkish, you know, mellow storage for them so that we can be enjoying them well into the fall. Uh, next up, coming will be like tomato explosion wave. Uh, we haven't only had potatoes and onions so far, of course, we've had dozens of zucchini. I've posted and shared some photos of the garden on Instagram, uh, of course, and you can always follow me there if you want to see like a, you know, very, very regular, almost daily little peek into whatever we're up to around the house and what's on my mind on Instagram, my account there, just like the podcast is Baked and Awake. So it's pretty much, you know, you get on Google, you hit that Baked and Awake into the uh, search bar. Preferably, you're trying something like DuckDuckGo these days instead of Google. Uh, and you're gonna find me, okay? We got our own domain that's always there. You can access the podcasts there. You can find me in any podcatching app worth its salt out there. Um, don't look for me on SoundCloud, okay? It's not updated. I, I, I clear out old episodes every once in a while, so I can repost a couple of episodes to SoundCloud, so you don't get like the utterly Stalist, oldest stuff, but that's not a podcast platform. Don't get it twisted. SoundCloud's not where you need to be if you're podcasting to yourselves. So keep that in mind. So yeah, we, we yeah, that's, the, that's the garden update, right? Tomatoes are coming next. We got a lot of other veggies in the garden. You'll see them on social if you want to. What am I telling you to do now, late July? I'll tell you what I'm telling you to do. Do the same thing we're doing, which is resetting beds that you're harvesting out of. If you've grown potatoes and now you have a big open space, put something right back in there. It's not too late to do so for this season. Okay, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, so we're like a zone 6 or borderline zone 7 for gardeners you know, who know that gardening speak. Uh, I think we're like 6A. Anyway, this is the time of year where you have a huge opportunity to actually throw plants back in the ground. Now, you have to take care of these plants. It's hot as shit out there right now, and you can and will fry some babies in the sun if you're not careful. Shade cloth and uh, garden netting of different kinds, fine mesh netting, um, thrown up in ad hoc teepees or hoops over your baby plant crop and a nice moist base underneath them that's getting regularly watered, especially on these hot direct sun days that are coming. Your plants can survive those babies once they get their second and third sets of leaves on them. They've been under the fleece. there, and and excuse me, I really shouldn't say fleece. That's a little bit different type of garden application product fleece to the nettings that I'm talking about and shade cloths that I'm talking about, they are going to set you up for a fall harvest of things like spinach and lettuce, Swiss chard, even broccoli and radishes can still be grown right now in my part of the country, and you'll be pulling them out through October, November. You might have some of your last radishes and maybe a kale or something or a cabbage. You could do brassicas at this time of year as well, um, and be enjoying them almost for your holiday. Your first of your holiday meals. I we grow cabbage and broccoli in the summertime every time, and they bolt like crazy. I am um, hearing that. The fall plantings of your broccolis, of your cabbages in particular, of your lettuces are going to be much more able to flourish in the increasingly cooling temperatures that'll come in September, for example. So you've got to baby them through July. Well, July's over, right? you got to baby them through August. Get these in the ground right now. When you get done listening to this podcast or if you're listening on your phone right now, get up. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go to the garden right now. Get out there. Let's go. Fucking smoother out. Amend that soil. Go dig into your seed stash. Get some lettuce in the ground. Get some spinach in the ground. Get some chard in the ground. Get it nice and wet. Start taking care of it. You take care of it through August. September, it's going to start mellowing out right away. Those plants are going to perk up. And in October and November, you're going to get broccolis and cabbages that I'm being told aren't going to be bolting on you that are going to be forming good cabbage heads. So check back in with us on that. I haven't done a fall planting of these kind of things in a while so this will be a good return to trying to do fall planting and overwintering. We also have big plans for an overwinter crop of kale cabbage uh, kale cabbage, garlic and leeks are planned uh, for like trying to let them go over the whole winter. And I'm going to employ, uh, again, like cold frame, shade cloth, or in that case, at that time of year, a fleece-type wind and elements blocker, to slightly lower at that point, that, that later, later season, that off-season, the December, January, February months, we know we're going to have more moisture than even those plants want. They'll probably all live either way, even if I don't do this. But I'm going to throw up some little windbreaks and some little shade breaks over them so that when it's raining for like 23 days at a time without a single day of sun, they don't just sit there and get absolutely drowned. Uh, Let's see how we do, though, this fall, right? This is our corona garden, as they say. Um, Always trying to connect with more of our food more deeply, For more months of the year, and the goal for us this season will be to not really stop growing at all. We've got the greenhouse to keep babies and favorites alive all winter. Going to try to overwinter a couple of pepper plants this year as well. That'll be a first for us, but I've been told that peppers, bell peppers, hot peppers of all varieties, can be perennials that can grow and produce for years at a time. So let's see what we can do with those. Yeah, so that's, that's the garden. Please, please garden if you're not already. I believe gardening is a strong and clear action that you can take that's powerful, that gives back to you almost immediately. You get back from your garden long before you start taking the fruits of your labor. The time that you spend in the garden with your family, the time you spend in the garden with your friends, is incredibly well-spent time. I promise you, I vow, that if you haven't started gardening before, but you have any means of doing so, container gardening is still gardening. Windowsill gardening is still gardening. I vow that you won't be sorry that you did. Yeah. Follow me on Instagram if you want to see... More updates about the garden, follow the account my wife administrates called Bluebird Farms as well. And uh, obviously with a name like that, you can guess that you'll see even more of the garden and the backyard pets and our entire food preservation side of things, canning, fermenting, pickling, dehydrating... It's just as important what you do with that bounty once it comes out of the garden, right? Preserve that food. It's an amazing feeling to open up your own preserved food that you made that tastes so incredible months after you were done in the garden. It's like the garden is still there for you. Uh, Yeah, all right. Steve loves gardening. (laughs) I hope you do too. Uh All right, we're going right into our stories right after I ask you guys this brief in-podcast survey. It's a one-question survey. Super easy. Um, If you're listening to this podcast on a podcatcher, that's totally cool. Uh, Most people know I also push all of these to YouTube, you know, with just like an image thumbnail and complete show notes. Um, I would like to know, the one-question survey is this. Would you like to hear more about... Emergency preparedness. Preparedness as a lifestyle, prepping lifestyle. More prepping lifestyle than like survivalist lifestyle or bushcraft lifestyle. I love the woods. I love camping. I try to not make a fool of myself when I go out into the woods, but I'm not going to, you know, represent myself to anybody here as survivor man or anything of the sort. Um, We're talking mostly about the stuff that I already talk about with the garden, but... Taking it a little further down the, you know, filling in the rest of the blanks, rounding out the picture of what a, you know, family like ours considers appropriate prepper lifestyle actions to take. So, the way to answer this is to roll over to YouTube, and find this episode of the podcast, which I haven't titled yet, but it'll be episode 107. It'll come out here. You know, today, tomorrow, right at the end of July, that kind of thing. Drop a comment, say yay or nay. You know, prepper content is is of interest. Let me know. Um, you know, for all its faults, YouTube still gives me some of the best analytics I have on my audience, and it gives me the mo- excuse me, it gives me the strongest tools for interacting with you. All sorts of apps say they have comments and stuff for you on the podcast, but if you think I'm going to roll over to Spreaker to go see if somebody commented on my latest episode or Podchaser or some other... Fucking... uh, No. No, I'm not going there. I'm not pushing to there. They're pulling my podcast down from somewhere. Okay, and that's fine. It's for everybody. This is not a paywalled, Patreon, bullshit-ass scene. All right, I'm still not doing that three years in. Yeah, there's a Patreon page up there for me. There's no patrons. There's like three other podcasters on there, and I don't charge anybody for that stuff. Of course, I signed up for it when I first found out about it, but I can't bring myself to sit here and beg you guys for money week in and week out for some shit that I decided all on my own to get up and do. And that doesn't mean there isn't a support button somewhere on my website. That doesn't mean there isn't enormous gratitude on my part for the very few people who are literally physically supporting this podcast. You know who you are. And of course, their support falls far short of coming anywhere close to taking care of the the monthly overhead that goes along with any of this, right? There's hosting. There's a website that also has hosting that has an email address attached to it. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com. It's always been there. It's always been an open channel for you to get in touch with me regardless of whatever happens on any of these platforms, YouTube or otherwise. So, yep, that was the survey. Now I'm officially rambling. Go ahead and roll on over to YouTube, comment on whether you want to hear about prepper-type topics here on the podcast, or maybe I need to make a video or two specific for YouTube, add that element into those podcasts. Probably will happen a little bit of both uh, if we get enough interest. Uh, While you're there over at YouTube, if you haven't already, please, God, hit the subscribe button, click that notification bell. If you really want to support the show, those kind of things, those actions directly inform the way YouTube chooses to further amplify my content and recommend it, etc. The more people who are already subbed to the podcast, who actually consume it there, who listen to or watch most of an episode and who take the time to go and comment on that episode, thumbs up, etc., Those things matter to YouTubers. Those things matter to the content creators that are on the platform. And they can really... You can watch it yourself when you're creating content. You can watch the difference in how an episode or how a video continues to do based on how interacted with that content has been, especially in the first few days. So, love you guys. Those of you who are really listening are hearing me right now, that's me begging you to go and help me out. I'm not shaking my cup. Looking for alms. I'm looking for those thumbs-ups and those comments and those shares. Take that shit, grab that copy link, and post it to your Facebook wall or send it to a friend. It all helps so much. All right. So, you've patiently sat through a garden update. You've patiently listened to my survey question. And now I'm going to reward you with a really great story. This is Now it's time to get stoned. God, I hope you've been getting stoned this whole time because Jesus Christ has just been babbling at you. Um, this story, I've been sitting on, but I love it. And... You know, every once in a while on this podcast, we do more than smoke weed. We talk about weed. <laughs> uh, this source—I don't know who the hell they are—Inverse.com. Never seen them before. Who knows if we'll ever go here again? But Inverse.com has a story that they put out this year. It was back in May, end of May. The title was—and again, grab that bowl, roll up, fire up your torch. Get that email switched on. All you got is a goddamn vape pen. Fuck. Go ahead. Just don't talk about it. I don't want to hear about the orange sherbet or anything else. Um, let's jump into ancient shrine reveals how marijuana was used to evoke religious ecstasy. Uh, obviously, a topic near and dear to all our hearts, right? And We've talked a little bit about Jesus might have been a mushroom. We've talked a little bit about cane, bosum and the anointing oils, presumed to also be cannabis hash oils of some kind, maybe consumable, maybe topical, maybe both, in the past. Here, however, is a story about... A fortress city in Israel, known as Tel Arad, where, according to the story here, and do we have a... we'll find out who our author is by the end. They've found evidence, according to the story, of some of the oldest and holiest, (laughs) their words not mine, rollers in biblical history. Deep in the inner sanctum of an 8th century BCE shrine, that's BCE before Common Era, as we've discussed in the past, worshippers weren't just burning frankincense. They were also burning marijuana. They chose marijuana. They're going with marijuana in this uh, story. They're not calling it cannabis. That's fine. The Tel Arad fortress is believed to be the southernmost stronghold for the kingdom of Judah, which was formed after the death of King Solomon of Solomon's Temple, right? When that fortress was excavated in the 1960s, scientists found evidence of a religious shrine on the northwestern edge of the site. Within that shrine, scientists found a room containing cult objects and two stone altars with a black lump of organic material carefully placed on top of each one. God, that just sounds like the... Place was just staged and set up, you know, and then they walked away from it. Decades later, a new chemical analysis of that plant material revealed that one altar, the larger one, likely contained frankincense. Got a puff. I just got a bowl here myself. Smoking out of my Sherlock this morning from Our Glass Creations. Thank you, Oli. Love you, brother. Our Glass is always hanging out with me on Instagram, following closely. I hope he's listening. Fellow gardener. My wife got me this Sherlock, I believe, for my last birthday from Our Glass. So the the larger altar contained frankincense. We've all heard of frankincense, right? Frankincense and myrrh were brought to the baby Jesus in the manger by the three wise men on the occasion of his birth. His auspicious, auspicious birth. So, second altar, they say. Meanwhile, the smaller altar bore no evidence of myrrh or gold. Instead, scientists found trace evidence of Delta 9 THC cannabidiol, CBD, and cannabiniol, CBN. All are chemicals that are present in marijuana. They are, again, they're really, they apparently are have chosen not to say cannabis in this particular story. Very interesting. These findings were published Wednesday in the journal Tel Aviv. Eran Ari is the curator of Iron Age and Persian period archaeology at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and the study's lead author. He tells Inverse, this discovery was, quote, the most amazing surprise. It suggests that cannabis was probably involved in cult rituals in biblical Judah, most likely, he says, to evoke a type of religious ecstasy. Continuing his quote, his statement, the fact that they were probably bringing cannabis from afar, bringing it into the temple, and putting it onto a different altar, is why we assume that it was for the purposes of this ecstasy, and not anything else. I have an image here of the stone altars. Um, so this looks like a recreation or something uh, because it looks like it's inside a collection at a museum. So I don't know if this is a replica of the site because you can see this image shows like the stonework inside what looks like a drywalled well-lit interior room of some kind of a modern building. So I don't, I don't know exactly what's up here. Uh, it says here, Collection of the Israel Antiquities Authority Photo, the Israel Museum by Laura Lockman." So again that's that's something that's inside a museum. I don't know if they physically dug the whole temple holy of holies out. Sounds like a pretty rough thing to do to the holy of holies, guys. (laughs) Drag it off to the museum or if this is a replica. Be nice to know that. But Anyway. No, no, no. Look at this. They did dig that sucker. Oh my lord. I read this story once already, but I missed this detail here. It says here neglected and forgotten. As Ari explains... We've known that there was unidentified plant matter on the altars in the Arad Shrine since it was first excavated. But in the 1960s, scientists struggled to identify it. In the intervening decades, the shrine remained on display at the Israel Museum. But the plant matter was forgotten. Quote, it was neglected for nearly 50 years, he said. So they dug this sucker out dragged it across the countryside brought it to tel aviv put it in a museum in a like a diorama like behind glass or whatever (laughs) and never checked it any closer for the next 50 years it's fantastic One of the things that excites Ari the most about this work is that it shows how far the field of archaeology has come. These unidentified plant samples gave archaeologists the opportunity to use new types of scientific analysis, specifically grass chromatography and mass spectrometry, which allows scientists to separate and analyze compounds to determine what they are. In the last ten years, Near Eastern archaeology became much more scientific than in the past. The time had finally arrived to figure out what these ancient Judahites were burning in their temple. What you smoking, Judahites? The larger altar contained frankincense mixed with animal fat to encourage evaporation. It's weird. I don't understand that. Frankincense mixed with the animal fat to encourage evaporation. I would almost think the animal fat, like a, like a lard or a butter type thing uh, would like, I don't know, lock it in, stabilize it, eh, obviously shows what I know. On the important altar, the cannabis altar, the team found evidence of terps. Terpenes, the article says here, the chemicals that give cannabis its fragrance which suggests that cannabis flowers had been burned. But they also found evidence of animal dung. Ew. <laughs> Suggesting that cannabis resin was mixed with feces to promote burning. So they just indicated that cannabis flowers had been burned, but they also found the animal dung cannabis resin Admixture. Maybe that's where the uh, Labrador strain originally came from (laughs) that Cheech and Chong famously introduced the world to so many years ago. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so hey, they had flour and they had concentrates up in the Holy of Holies. That's what I'm reading, all right, from here. Ari says finding frankincense is about par for the course for that time period. And by the way, I do believe you can like, you know, incense burn frankincense and huff that stuff a little bit and get a little wacky off of it. Have never tried it. Don't know even what it smells like. Uh, It would be interesting to at least smell the fragrance of the, like the dry herb or whatever it is. I don't even, what the fuck is frankincense? I'll have to look that stuff up. Um, I think it's a plant though. Anyway. Uh, Par for the course for that time period, right? Frankincense. It's consistently mentioned in the Assyrian texts and in the Bible. But the cannabis provided a surprising window into another level of religious life in the ancient world. I don't know why this is still surprising. I mean, I told you at the top of this story stuff that we've done in the past talking about it here on the podcast. These theories are all over the place about cannabis use in the early Christian church and in other uh, early religions. It says here, the first evidence of the use of cannabis as a psychoactive goes back far further than the 8th century BCE. In 2019, scientists found evidence of THC in funerary incense burners found in Central Asia. The authors of that study suggested that these finds were evidence that people were using marijuana in a religious context. These people were likely the ubiquitous and always named blamed, credited, or otherwise, Scythians. Nomadic warriors who lived roughly 2,500 years ago. Wow, that is like such a reductionist definition of who the Scythians were. Nomadic warriors who lived roughly 2,500 years ago. Cool. Good job, guys. Marijuana's religious context at the Arad Shrine, says Ari, is extremely clear. The two altars were found on a staircase that leads to the innermost sanctum of the shrine, which is referred to as the Holy of Holies. In parentheses, that term is in reference to a similar area found within the ancient temple of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies was a most sacred place and can only be entered by the Israelite high priest. The fact that the cannabis was found on an altar in the Arad Shrine's Holy of Holies helps confirm its religious nature, says Ari. I don't think there is any doubt about the cultic context of the find, says Ari ecstasy, or a religious state of consciousness, was part of the cult of Judah, he says. They close with, Nowadays, scientists are finding new uses for marijuana and all its chemical compounds. But these finds at Arad demonstrate that humans have been getting creative with weed for centuries. Even in biblical times, getting high perhaps made us feel a little closer to God. Our writer for this piece is credited as Emma Butel. Let's try that again. Emma Betuel, B-E-T-U-E-L. This was posted at May 28th, 2020, and she narrowly missed by uploading at 4.15 p.m. You had a big opportunity there, Emma. All you had to do was wait five minutes. <laughs> Maybe next time, huh? Um yeah, I don't really need to comment on that story. It's fantastic stuff. Weed's been with us a long time, and it's been in an exalted role the entire time. And I'll smoke to that. So following up on that story is one that I found at another... I don't even know sometimes where these stories come from. The internet is vast and unknowable, everybody. This one's the DailyGalaxy.com. When you hit their little three-bar menu at the top of their website, I see headers for climate change, evolution, most viewed, special reports, and a contact link. Um, I just like this story um, entitled, Quantum Sapiens, Measuring Quantum Effects at the Human Scale. So you see, now you understand why it's important to get stoned during the early parts of the show while we're talking about light topics and cannabis, because now we're going quantum. And if you're not already at least a little bit, you know, on your way, you're probably going to have trouble keeping up. This is from July 1st, and they posted this under their Cosmology, Physics, and Science headings. Now for the first time, a team led by researchers at the MIT LIGO Laboratory has measured the effects of quantum fluctuations on objects at the human scale, collapsing the boundary between the random uncertainty of the quantum world, where particles spring into and out of existence and the orderly certainty of the classical world, where we humans live, see, and measure. Good old Euclidean space, as my wife would probably point out right about now. In a paper published in Nature, the the magazine Nature, like I think we've all seen that one somewhere along the lines, right? The MIT researchers report observing that quantum fluctuations, tiny as they may be, can nonetheless, quote, kick an object as large as the 40 kilogram mirrors of the LIGO observatory. Okay, this is, this is MIT, this is Nature Magazine, this is the story we're getting from these researchers, okay, just pointing that out for all of us. They're moving, quantum fluctuations are moving 40 kilogram weight mirrors of this observatory causes them to move by a tiny degree which the team was able to measure underscoring the universe as a self-excited circuit that term was in quotes I like it self-excited circuit a system whose existence and whose history are determined by measurements LIGO's detectors confirm predictions of quantum theory It turns out, the quantum noise in LIGO's detectors is enough to move the large mirrors by 10 to 20 meters, a displacement that was predicted by quantum mechanics for an object of this size, but that had never been measured before. A hydrogen atom is 10 to the minus 10 meters, so this displacement of the mirrors is to a hydrogen atom what a hydrogen atom is to us. And we measured that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm confused too. That's cool though. That was a quote from Lee McCuller, a research scientist at MIT's Kavli Institute for Astrophysics and Space Research. See, this is the problem when you're dealing with things that are 10 to the minus 10 meters of size and they move the mirrors by 10 to the minus 20 meters. You know... I think most of us have a little difficulty comprehending or let alone conceptualizing what 10 to the minus 10 meters is. We're, yeah, super subatomic, right? So, yeah, this displacement of the mirrors is to a hydrogen atom what a hydrogen atom is to us. There we go. So the hydrogen atom is fucking tiny. And this displacement is tiny to the hydrogen atom but it's detectable. The researchers used a special instrument that they designed called a quantum squeezer, nice, (laughs) to manipulate the detector's quantum noise and reduce its kicks to the mirrors in a way that could ultimately improve LIGO's sensitivity in detecting gravitational waves, explains Hao-Sun Yu, a physics graduate student at MIT. What's special about this experiment is, we've seen quantum effects on something as large as a human, says Nergis Mavalava, the marble professor and associate head of the physics department at MIT. We too, every nanosecond of our existence are being kicked around, buffeted by these quantum fluctuations. It's just that the jitter of our existence, our thermal energy, is too large for these quantum vacuum fluctuations to affect our motion measurably with LIGO's mirrors we've done all this work to isolate them from the thermally thermally driven motion and other forces so that they are now still enough to be kicked around by quantum fluctuations and this spooky popcorn of the universe everything in quantum physics has to be spooky because of Spooky action at a distance, I guess. (laughs) Maybe he's giving a nod to Einstein there. A quantum radiation kick. And I am assuming gender there, and I apologize for that. I don't know if Nergis Mavalvala is a man or woman, or non-identifying. And any which way that was, that's absolutely fine. So getting back to it here, though. A quantum radiation kick. They mentioned this kick. LIGO is designed to detect gravitational waves arriving at the Earth from cataclysmic sources millions to billions of light years away. That's great. We only detect gravitational waves from cataclysmic sources. (laughs) I mean, where else are they going to come from? It comprises two twin detectors, one in Hanford, Washington—oh my god, of course Washington's involved— and the other in Livingston, Louisiana. Each detector is an L-shaped interferometer made up of two 4-kilometer-long tunnels, at the end of which hangs a 40-kilogram mirror. Wow. I'm going to go tour these places. May i go to Hanford to see if I can get in there at LIGO. I wonder if they give tours of LIGO. To detect a gravitational wave, a laser located at the input of the LIGO interferometer sends a beam of light down each tunnel of the detector, where it reflects off the mirror at the far end to arrive back at its starting point. In the absence of a gravitational wave, the lasers should return at the same exact time. If a gravitational wave passes through, it would briefly disturb the position of the mirrors and therefore the arrival times of the lasers. It almost makes sense even to me. Much has been done, they pointed this out above, to shield the interferometers from external noise so that the detectors have a better chance of picking out the exceedingly subtle disturbances created by an incoming gravitational wave. Wow, that's quiet down there, huh? Mavalvala and Her colleagues, boom, thank you, Daily Galaxy, wondered whether LIGO might also be sensitive enough that the instrument might even feel subtler effects, such as quantum fluctuations within the interferometer itself, and specifically, quantum noise generated among the photons in LIGO's laser. Damn, they're trying to listen to everybody. This quantum fluctuation in the laser light can cause radiation pressure that can actually kick an object, McCuller adds. The object in our case, a 40 kilogram mirror, which is a billion times heavier than the nanoscale objects that other groups have measured this quantum effect in. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Squeezing the quantum noise. To see whether they could measure the motion of LIGO's massive mirrors in response to tiny quantum fluctuations, The team used an instrument they recently built as an add-on to the interferometers, which they call a quantum squeezer. With the squeezer, scientists can tune the properties of the quantum noise within LIGO's interferometer. The team first measured the total noise within LIGO's interferometers, including the background quantum noise as well as classical noise, or other disturbances generated from normal, everyday vibrations. Dude, they could record such a good podcast in this place. It's not even funny. They then turned the squeezer on and set it to a specific state that altered the properties of quantum noise specifically. They were able to then subtract the classical noise during data analysis to isolate the purely quantum noise in the interferometer. Oh, yeah. I need this noise reduction software. As the detector constantly monitors the displacement of the mirrors to any incoming noise, The researchers were able to observe that the quantum noise alone was enough to displace the mirrors by 10 to the negative 20 meters. Mavalvala notes that the measurement lines up exactly with what quantum mechanics predicts. But it's still remarkable to see it be confirmed in something so big, she says. Going a step further, the team wondered whether they could manipulate the quantum squeezer to reduce the quantum noise within the interferometer. The squeezer is designed such that when it's set to a particular state, it squeezes certain properties of the quantum noise. Squeezes is in quotes, of course. This is likening it to squeezing of the quantum noise, in this case, phase and amplitude. Phase fluctuations can be thought of as arising from the quantum uncertainty in the light's travel time while amplitude fluctuations impart quantum kicks to the mirror's surface. So, they they have quite a bit, you know, in addition here. Um, to me, this was just an amazing example of the ever increasing degrees of sensitivity that like observatories and whatever you call these things this isn't exactly like a quantum accelerator situation this isn't um CERN here we're not talking about a super collider um nor are we talking about like a conventional telescope Type observatory, but they are, of course, listening to and looking for gravitational waves that, as they characterize, they're being detected from cataclysmic sources millions or billions of light-years away. Um, It's crazy stuff. It's MIT. I didn't know they were at Hanford doing this as well. We've talked about the Hanford nuclear plant on the podcast here before. Got a lot of nuclear waste material here in Washington State being stored at Hanford. I've had some storage accidents at Hanford and tunnel collapses just in the last few years. Um, but apparently this is where LIGO is at. Half of it anyway. So... Like always, just like the last story, you'll have the link to the full article here. They do have a link to some sources at the bottom of this document as well. Sort of a bibliography just for this article for you to learn a little bit more about LIGO and um, this particular experiment going on there at this time. I don't know... I don't know what you guys think of... Quantum theory... Quantum physics... I guess it's... Considered much more than a theory, right? We're... Talking about this is our best... Closest... Working model... Of the universe... That we've got... I know I'm... A conspiracy theorist and everything... But... Uh... You know, I still think there's a lot to be learned here... Uh... Be interested to continue tracking on these understandings and these measurements that are being made and see if at some point in time the folks over at the Thunderbolts Project give us some electromagnetic universe theory informed views on this type of thing because uh, i'm I'm definitely that weird i love the electromagnetic the electric universe theory we've talked about it here on the podcast in the past for sure and definitely will again so yeah quantum physics y'all we're talking about the holy of holies and cannabis oil being right there at, at it maybe we'll detect some quantum cannabis particles one of these days floating in on them Panspermic mission to land here and everywhere fertile within the universe. Um, okay, we're coming up on an hour and I had two more stories for you, but I'm gonna wrap it right there. We'll get to them. Both of them will keep. Um, one of them's from Wired, and it had to do with the virus that shall not be named. And vaccines with minor side effects and how they could still be pretty unfortunate for people uh, and how that sort of sets up the how the lack of transparency and honesty about the reporting of that aspect of vaccine development and trials is fertile ground for conspiracy theorists to raise questions and to You know, well, yeah, just sort of do their best to knock down this work um, for whatever good it may do. But the article correctly asks the question: you know, why aren't harder questions being asked about this in the first place on the part of journalists? And why are we more or less unquestioningly listening to what amounts to simply PR coming from the companies developing these vaccines with very uncritical ears. Uh, And the the last one would have been a really great one to end on because it's kind of good news. Um, A motherboard story via Slashdot that was going to be about theoretical physicists who have predicted a 90% probability of the collapse of civilization in the next few decades. So, I mean, at least we've got that to look forward to, right? (laughs) Oh, gosh, you guys. All right, you've been wonderful. You've been really patient. And um, I hope you enjoyed both of the stories that we did get to today. I'm sitting here looking at a short list of one, two, three, four different... um, probable upcoming episode topics that i can't wait to get with uh you on but each of them deserves their own really serious treatment and um in the case of one of them they don't even know i'm trying to reach out to him and talk to him yet but i'm hoping i can get a hold of this individual and maybe sit him down for an actual chat in fact almost every one of these involves a chat or an interview so Look forward to hearing some voices, some additional voices besides mine, sometime soon on the podcast. And if you have something that you want to talk to me about on the podcast, or if you have something that you would like to hear me investigate, look into, talk about with you, as I said before, open channel. Email me at talktous at Get out in those gardens. Gosh darn it. I know you didn't get up and go in the garden when I told you to earlier, but you need to go now, okay? Especially if you made it this far. We're 55 minutes into this nonsense. You could have left at any time. (laughs) Get out there. Email me. Message me on Instagram. I I answer my DMs. Comment on my photos and ask questions there if you want to know about what's going on in the garden and what you can, can or can't do right now. I'm here to tell you, you can still do a lot of stuff. So, let's do it together and share your progress with me. I I absolutely love it. Um. Okay, you guys. You know what to do. Smoke some indica. You can smoke some sativa too, I don't care. But either way, do shit anyway. And we'll be back together real soon.